What's up everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy aka DJ Shrimp and you're listening to Millionaire 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 Interviews. Interviews. I like turtles. We're trying to reach our goal of 50 Patreon members by the end of July and now we're 70% of the way there. Scratch that. Now we're actually 82% of the way there. So thank you to our newest Patreon members. In August, we'll go ahead and give a shout out to all of our members who helped us hopefully reach our goal of 50 Patreon members. So do you consider yourself to be a smart and helpful person? Do you want to help us reach our goal of 50 Patreon members by the end of next month? If so, then join our Patreon club where you can connect with other smart and helpful people just like you. Join the club by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. To help support the show. Yeah, I think you start to realize the importance of it because you see what the results can be. I think what we do when we're young is we're like, oh my God, I just have to do this a hundred hours a week. Like the more time I do, the better. As you get a little bit older and experienced, you're like, wait a second, I can have more efficient time and effective time. I think that's the difference. <laughs> Yeah, I think you kind of have to when you're building a business. You have to believe in what you're building to an extreme, right? Where everyone else is saying it's not possible and you're saying, no, it is possible. The people that got us to where we are today are amazing people, but may not be the people to get us to the next step which a lot of entrepreneurs face is this ongoing cycle of positive and negative feelings where you're on this super high and then super low, right? And how do you manage through that? I think that's been a challenge over all the years. Anyone who says that it's not, I think is lying because the emotional changes being an entrepreneur are so big. My name is David Hauser. I'm actually 37 today. It's my birthday today. Happy birthday. Yeah. And right now I'm located in Austin, Texas but we're in the process of actually moving back to Las Vegas. A uh, long story, which we can talk about, but I spent a lot of time in software as a service. The largest company I grew was Grasshopper, a virtual phone system for entrepreneurs. We built that from zero to $30 million a year in revenue with a team of about 40 people. And then we sold that to a large publicly traded company. Also built Chargeify, a totally remote team of about 40 people until we sold the business to a small fund in San Antonio. That business is doing great now as well. So my background has been pretty heavily rooted in software as a service and technology. On top of that, I probably made 80 to 100 angel investments, probably broken even on the portfolio. So I don't know if it's the greatest way to make money, but learned a lot, made a lot of great connections, found some really interesting people along the way. And then today I've shifted focus pretty significantly into kind of health and wellness and changed my life over the last five years, making massive changes, uh, losing 40 pounds and becoming far healthier and feeling better and being more connected. So writing a book about that and also working with a new company called Superfat, providing better food options for people eating a high fat diet. And I'm sure once this comes out, we can have it come out around your book. Do you want to just mention what your book title name is? And then at the end of the interview, we'll plug it again in that way so people can check that out too. Yeah. So the book is called Unstoppable. You can see more information about it on unstoppablebook.com. Early access, there's an email list and such. It comes out September 2019. Super excited about it, providing a framework for how to implement your own tests on yourself to find what works for you for diet, exercise, sleep, mindfulness, all of the major categories, but also lays out the groundwork so you can start to make your own decisions and your own experiments across all of those categories. 
What made you want to write a book? Yeah, so it's a great question. I'm not the person that would ever write a book, really. And I never really set out to do that. But what I found was people kept asking me, David, how did you lose 40 pounds? Oh, why are you doing this differently? And I kept coming back to like, I can tell you how I did it. But more importantly, if I gave you the tools that I used, it would be much far more powerful. So that's this very simple testing framework that I quite honestly stole from marketing testing and continuous optimization or continuous improvement processes in business. So that's where the book kind of came from. And I really wish that I had this on the beginning of my journey. I spent many years, hundreds of thousands of dollars and thousands of hours doing this stuff. And I wish I had this resource to A, give me a framework for how to think about it, but B, give me a high level concepts like here's how you can get 80% of the results with the minimal effort, right? And minimal doesn't necessarily mean no effort. It just means how do I optimize that effort to return ratio? How much do you weigh today? My weight has gone up and down a little bit. I got down to 177 or so from 220 roughly. Then I started to add more muscle back. So right now I'm about 184, I think, 185. I think my optimal weight is probably around that range, maybe 190 as I start to build a little more muscle. But I've shifted more recently away from looking at just weight and looking much more body fat. And I've measured that over time, everything from obviously the scale in my house, there's bioimpedance, which is okay, all the way through doing DEXA scanning at least twice a year to see what the real numbers are like and trying to target very specific areas. Like how do I get any additional fat that might still be around the belly area, even if it might look thin, but this is fat behind the skin, right? You said you basically gained 40 pounds or you had lost 40 pounds. Did you just gain that over years of working so much that you were not focused on fitness as much and more focused on Running companies? I don't know. I mean, there was the ups and downs in there. Like I ran Boston Marathon. I did a half Ironman. So I had exercised a tremendous amount and probably got down to like the 190s at one point, but never really below that and tried all sorts of different things. Definitely something I always struggled with, but every time I would stop doing extreme activities or extreme dieting, I would kind of bounce back up to 10. So I think I struggled with my weight for a long amount of time. Do you think you're just like an extreme person in general? Yeah, I'm definitely a very extreme person. I don't do anything halfway, right? Someone said to me, why don't you run? Four months later, I ran the Boston Marathon. Not fast. I raised money to qualify for a spot, but I did it. I trained through the winter. Someone said, hey, maybe do a triathlon. I said, okay, I'm going to train for a half Ironman. And I was on my way to training for an Ironman. A few years ago, I decided to go to a yoga class. And then I went to six days a week yoga class and a 200-hour teacher training within a short period of time. I think for good or for bad, I definitely do things to an extreme. And it's how I learn. It's funny. One of my actually very first episodes is actually episode two. It's one of my first interviews I did. The guy named was Matt Gallant. He's in Panama. And he was just talking about how he got into drinking a lot and how he is extreme in everything he did, right? Even when he's working out, he's extreme. When you're building your business, you're extreme. And I feel like that's a persona or some type of personality trait that a lot of entrepreneurs have because when you're growing a business, you just kind of go get totally locked in and you have to make some sacrifices along the way. So I didn't know if you were the same kind of personality type as well. Yeah, I think you kind of have to when you're building a business. You have to believe in what you're building to an extreme, right? Where everyone else is saying it's not possible and you're saying, no, it is possible. And I think that's what makes it so different, being an entrepreneur compared to having a job. And I think you have to have that trait. On the other side, I think entrepreneurs also have a tremendous amount of balance, even if they don't realize it. And that balance comes from balancing all of the different things within the business, but also most entrepreneurs in time realize that balancing life and health and wellness is actually just as important as the business. Now, I think when we're young, we ignore that. But I think 
if you talk to entrepreneurs as they've gone through their journey, they've realized that more and more. And especially entrepreneurs on their second or third or fourth company, definitely do. And if you're able, like if someone's listening now and they're able to keep that balance, I've always heard and I kind of believe it too. It's like if you have the ability to keep it balanced, let's just say you're working out a lot and you're making gains in that. Well, if their business life's not going well or your personal life's not going well, at least you have that going well, your health part versus maybe the business is going really well, but then your health's going down and your personal life's okay. So I think the ability to, like you're saying, as you get older, I think more entrepreneurs or just people in general kind of have that understanding, it seems like. Yeah, I think you start to realize the importance of it because you see what the results can be. I think what we do when we're young is we're like, oh my God, I just have to do this a hundred hours a week. Like the more time I do, the better. As you get a little bit older and experienced, you're like, wait a second, I can have more efficient time and effective time. I think that's the difference. Why don't we dive into details for your actual story now that we talked a little bit about where you're at today and I guess health-wise and soon to be great author. I guess the main thing people would know you for is you just call it grasshopper because I think I always remember it as 1-800-GRASSHOPPER. I don't know if that was true or not. I think a lot of entrepreneurs might have heard of grasshopper in the beginning. So I don't know if that's the best place to start if you want to even go back further than that. Yes. We actually started the company was called Got Vmail. So it had a totally different name and we changed that to Grasshopper. Although we provided 800 numbers and toll free and even local phone numbers, we never called it 1-800-GRASSHOPPER. But I mean, we definitely provided that service to our customers. Do you want to pick up what year you started that and just tell us what age you were and then kind of tell us about the early years of starting Grasshopper and I guess what it is in more detail for anyone who doesn't know about it? Yeah. So it started in roughly 2003, quite a while ago. It was 12 years before we sold the business and we never had an exit plan at all. We just wanted to build a great business where we loved being, me and my co-founder. And I think we achieved that. We had a lot of bumps along the way and we scaled that business pretty quickly. You know, So in, in kind of the first year or so, we got to a million dollars pretty quickly, hired our first employee to take over customer service and customer support because I was answering those calls. And as much as I loved doing it and it was helpful talking to customers to learn from, I am not a great customer service person. Person, and we hired that. How about Grasshopper? Just so people know, like, what's the difference between that and like a business line or some phone call? Sure. I always forget this because I never really talk about the business. When we even sold like marketing the customers, we didn't really talk about the business as much as the brand and what we could accomplish. Grasshopper provided a phone line, either an 800 number or any toll-free number or a local phone number or both, where you could press one for sales, two for support. You'd have on-hold music. You could transfer between extensions, get your voicemails transcribed and sent to you an email, receive faxes and into PDF and all of those different things. So the way we always thought of it was like a large company PBX or phone system, but totally virtual and marketed and sold and priced for the micro business. So one to 10 employee companies was our typical target. And basically having your number make it look like it might be a bigger company or at least just easy to direct. And maybe was it cheaper than trying to get your own business lines and doing that way as well? Yeah. So I think there's a combination of one professional image. So there's an expectation like you're not calling someone's cell phone or like a phone you just pick up and say, hello. So I think it provided a professional image, better connectivity to your customer, routing them to the right place at the right time, not through complex trees, but getting them to the right person. So each individual had an extension. Also, I benefit like hiding your cell phone number. When you made outbound calls, we would display the grasshopper phone number, or your phone number. So when someone called back, it went back into the main phone number rather than ringing to your cell phone. I think that was an additional benefit. There was lots of side features as well, but I mean, really it came down to professional image, being connected with your customers, and then getting away from having to have that physical line installed in your office as people started to move to cell phones and voice over IP and whatever else. 
How did you stumble upon this idea? Because I think you said it's about 2003. It looks like you graduated college about 2004. I guess you're around 21, 22 when you actually got this thing started. Yeah. So I was a sophomore going to junior year at Babson College and had started a few other small businesses here and there, mostly online stuff, consulting, design, and ads business, other stuff like that, and found this problem for myself. The options were I had like a little StarTech flip phone, and I think it was the early days of Singular before T-Mobile. And that wasn't very professional, right? Like the phone would ring at odd hours, I'd be in class. So I went out looking for this type of a solution. How could I fix this problem for myself and both have a professional image, decide when I wanted my phone to ring and how, all that stuff, and really didn't find anything that wasn't very expensive hardware that had to be installed. You have any technology background or anything? Like how you try to figure this out? Because it seems you weren't able to find anyone to do that for you, right? So that's why you made the company? Yeah. I had a technology background in that I liked it. I was never had formal training. Like I took an AP computer science class in high school and then that was it. So I self-taught myself how to program pretty early on. I had learned a number of the languages and things to be used online, taught myself all that, and then ultimately taught myself this language that we needed to use to build these phone systems. So I always think of myself like, I can have very deep conversations about a technology stack today. I am not the best developer in the world, but I can read code and understand it in most languages and conceptually I understand it. You were still in college, so it didn't sound like maybe you'd have a lot of money at this point to go ahead and get this thing started. So do you want to tell us about the early years, if you don't mind? Because you said you got to a million in revenue that year one, and then again, you're still in college. Just tell us about how much money you actually had starting off and then how you and your partner kind of put together the business plan to get this thing going. We didn't have very much money. We had maybe $150,000 from past ventures. We needed about $300 to get started because at the time there was no Amazon Web Services or AWS. There was no Twilio or you know any of these virtualized technologies. So we had to buy servers, install them in a data center, pay for T1 lines coming in and all this stuff. I mean, we definitely didn't have enough capital. So we just kind of scrounged our way as best as we could. From there, I mean, we built this business with scale in mind and always looking to grow. We lived with as little as possible uh, through college and after until the business was at a reasonable scale where you know we could pay ourselves good enough. And to me, good enough was always like, could I live in the house that I roughly wanted to live in? And it's not a million dollar home or anything, like just a house. And could I drive the car I wanted? I think if you can answer those questions, that is more than enough. I don't understand entrepreneurs that pay themselves beyond that unless they're running a lifestyle business, right? That's a totally different thing. We were running a growth-oriented organization. We always just said we were going to invest in growth. And where were you located? Because Babson College is in the Northeast? Yeah, so I was in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, and I was actually living in Boston. So you were doing this, and like, how long did it actually take to do this technology to get this thing going? Need a new logo for your current or future business? Well, BrandCrowd is an awesome logo maker tool that can help you make an amazing logo design online. If you're an entrepreneur, startup founder, innovator, thought leader, or basically anyone who owns a business, well, BrandCrowd is a fantastic and easy way to get a logo. BrandCrowd takes your business name and industry and generates thousands of logos in seconds. BrandCrowd uses high quality handcrafted designs created by designers from around the world to create custom logos just for you. Once BrandCrowd generates a logo you like, you can edit and tweak the logo, changing fonts and colors until it is perfect for you. One of the best things about BrandCrowd is it's free to get started and begin generating logos. Plus, it's super easy to use. Once you're happy with your logo, you can download all the files you need to start your business. If you don't like any of the designs, no problem. You don't have to pay. So to find out more about BrandCrowd, go check out brandcrowd.com forward slash maker. 
That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D.com forward slash maker. Whether you're developing your personal brand, building your own business, or working for a large organization, your online presence is critical to your success. Pantheon is the leading web ops provider, powering more than 285,000 websites and trusted by small business, startups, and some of the most well-known brands. Rated as the leading product for both small businesses and enterprises, and named one of the top 10 software products of 2019 by G2 Crowd, Pantheon's web ops platform helps you build, manage, and optimize your most important brand asset, your website. Whether you're just beginning to build your dream or already well on your way, Pantheon can help you deliver the best online experience and future-proof your digital presence. To learn more about how Pantheon can help you and your business, go to pantheon.io forward slash millionaire. That's pantheon.io slash millionaire. Or scroll to the episode notes below to find out more about Pantheon. So it took a, probably a few months, but even during that process, we right away were selling. We went online and this was before the days of AdWords. So we were using Omniture to drive traffic and we wanted to see like, what could we get people to pay for? What pricing work? Inherently, without even realizing it, we were doing this early market testing, not because we were smart or we understood it, but because we have to sell stuff. So we have no other option than to do this. We spent a lot of time doing that. As we started to ramp the technology, we literally built the phone system first without the web interface and said, we're going to charge people for the web interface to stop people from using it for now so we could get out there and sell. So we charged $10 a month and then people started paying that to access their stuff online. And this was 14, 15 years ago. So that made sense, but it allowed us to get out there right away. We built no backend. A customer would call and say, I have a problem. And I'm literally typing select star from customer to try to find them in the SQL database. You said kind of early on, I maybe it was even by accident where you're trying to find those customers. So what were you just like on MySpace posting on people's walls? No, no, we were paying for traffic, like small print ads in the back of Entrepreneur Magazine, Omniture, which was the precursor for AdWords. So this was early search where we could buy clicks, display ads. We were doing anything we possibly could generate primary demand driven to the website. I was joking about MySpace. If I'm looking on these other places that you're going, you're just buying AdWords, trying to figure that out at that time too, because I guess that's still super early on too. So I mean, even without that concept of you, like most people might build it all first before it's ready to go. But did you and your co-founder at that point in time, like, was it totally accidental or did you kind of over time say, Hey, this is what we need to do before we actually launch the whole thing? No, no, it was a hundred percent accidental. I wish that I could say like we were geniuses and thought about this. And we later on learned in the organization how important testing was when consulting came in and kind of re-explained this new quote unquote industry of A-B testing and optimization and all the things we could do with the software was being built a few years later. Now people talk about this MVP and sell first and that concept didn't exist 14 years ago. We just knew that we had to sell because we had no other option. We didn't want to raise money. We weren't going to raise money. So how could we possibly do this if we weren't selling the product? What was driving you to start this business in the first place? It was really solving our own pain. And people always say this, like the best business to start is to solve your own pain. And I do truly believe this because what it allows you to do is have deep conviction about what you're building rather than jumping from customer A saying this to customer B saying that. And along the way, we found like we knew exactly what we were building because we were building it for ourselves. And there's challenges with that, but that's what drove us. And then two, both of us knew that we wanted to be entrepreneurs and we weren't going to go work for someone. So we might as well 
well start something. And this seemed like a good something at the time. And you said the first year you did a million in revenue? Yeah, roughly. Probably a little yeah, bit about more. how many clients was it? I don't remember the number of clients. I mean, the average customer paid $45, $50 a month at that time. That kind of went down over time a little bit, but yeah, that was the average customer. So maybe like a 2000 or so, but even dealing with that, that seems pretty astonishing for that first year. I mean, did you make a profit off all that? No, we didn't make a profit because we were reinvesting everything into the business. If we could spend a dollar in ads and get $2 back, we would continue to do that to the extreme as much as our cash flow could handle it. And we continued that for all the years of the business. That's just how we ran things. If you wanted to take the money out, you would have been profitable, but it's basically you were reinvesting in it because again, you're used to living the college lifestyle. I don't understand. Like, Why would we need anything outside of that? No, right? I agree with you, but I think what happens is once you make that first dollar yourself. I don't know if that's was your first point of seeing how much money could be in your account or was in your account. I think some people just get excited that they're like, they put in that many hours and they want to go ahead and spend that money. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the difference between running a growth oriented company and a lifestyle business. If you want to grow it, then I think it's a very easy decision. And it's not even a decision that happens. It's just like naturally happens. Any mistakes over that first year? Because I'll take it chronologically if we can. I know we don't have to go literally year by year by year, but at yeah. least just even that first year, like even working with your partner, how did everything work out? The first year was very much about, I mean, even the first three years was about doing every job ourselves first. So no matter what it was, we did it first. So if it was customer service, that was the first position we hired for. If it was a developer, that was the second position we hired for. I had done that myself. Each step of the way, and we did that for a number of years. I think it provided a number of helpful learnings along the way where doing the position yourself, one, you know what type of person it needs. And two, you can start to define the processes, right? And say, okay, this is how I want things done or how I don't want things done. And how many hours were you putting in those first couple of years? I was working all the time. I never calculated the hours, but between going to school two days a week and running the business for the first two years, because I was still in school for those first two years, it was a full day of school twice a week because I had to stuff all the classes into there, then work all night for those nights and then work all the other days too. Did you have any friends or family who thought you were crazy for doing this? I mean, I think everyone, I think all my friends looked at me like, it's the same, like first year on college. So why are you doing this? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Family, I don't think as much. I think family understood that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I only wanted to go to Babson College because it's a school that specialized in entrepreneurship. I think family understood it. How about the co-founder? Everything was good for the first couple of years with him too? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, actually. Like we actually do a lot of stuff together today still. And we were not friends before we started. We became friends over time, but we're also vastly different people. I think we went into it kind of naively and said, eh, I mean, maybe this works. Let's try it out. Like we didn't have a formal agreement or anything. Like we just said, let's try this. Probably not the best approach, but it also worked out because we are vastly different. Our skills complement and we both have changed over time and we're willing to take on different roles. So there's never been any conflict. And I think ultimately we would just respect each other. So it's worked out really well throughout all the years. So what was he good at and what were you good at? I think the initial breakdown was I handled all of the operations and technical side of the business. He handled the marketing. Over the years, I started to migrate into more of the company culture, core values, core purpose, op still operational in the business and like how do things work. Started to dig a little bit more into marketing as we operationalized marketing compared to ran it as a branding exercise. And I think our roles shifted over time a little bit, but very naturally, right? And there's also these really interesting ups and downs, which I think is one of the greatest things about having a partner in that sometimes I couldn't work a hundred hour a week and he could, and he could pick up that difference. And I think that's the benefit of having a partner. Like during those ups and downs, it's just very easy. I know you're kind of younger at this point, but was there any type of like 
masterminds or mentors that you might have had at that point in time as well that were kind of helping to guide you? We had a few professors. I had a mentor from before. In the early years, we probably should have had more, but we didn't have that many, honestly. In the later years, we decided to move a little bit more towards coaches. We can discuss how that worked and why, but I think it is very critical, especially for a company that has not raised funding because they don't have a board and they don't have people to kind of give some of those insights to build that advisory board of some type. And there's lots of ways to do that. What stage do you think we should jump to from here as far as like the grasshopper life as far as five years down, 10 years down, or what some pivot points that you think we could learn from your experiences? Yeah, I think the next one is probably when we hit like five, maybe six, $7 million in revenue. Team size has started to grow. Maybe we're 15, 20 people, maybe even more than that. And then kind of that migrates into kind of the $10 million range where we're at 30 people. And across that period, I think the biggest learning and the biggest mistake was we ignored company culture and we hadn't discovered and voiced the core values of the business because when we started, it was just me and my business partner hiring. So it was easy to make sure that those people kind of felt there was a good fit. That's how we always just naturally define culture, like the person fits or doesn't fit. When other people in the organization start to do hiring, that starts to diminish a little bit and you end up with people that might not be a great cultural fit. But it was our mistake that we didn't voice those core values. We went through a year process and discovered them, voiced them, integrated them into all of our hiring, firing, rewards, recognition, both public and private, all of the pieces of the business, and ultimately probably lost about half of our employees because they weren't a good fit. But it was the best thing that ever happened to the business. And now... I started a business today and it's one of the first things we do. How many years were you into that when that happened? We were probably four years in at that point, three, four years. Yeah. And so how many people did you have? And then you said you fired about basically half of them. We fired some and some just left. We probably had about 25 to 30 people at that point. And then it went down to 10 or 15? Yeah. I mean, it never really went down that quickly because there was just attrition over time. But yeah, I mean, in a year period, there was quite a lot of turnover. It seems like even at this point in time, I guess you're in mid-20s, upper-20s, it seems like you did the right thing as far as you wanted to hire someone to do the hiring and stuff for you. At least you understood that you couldn't do everything all the time. How would we keep that from happening if we were to grow our business to that size and dealing with that critical point? Yeah, I think the first thing that I've learned is that you have to discover and voice those values early on literally as soon as possible and posting them publicly on the website. And that's the first step. But the second step, which is far more critical, is how does this integrate into every process in the company? Let's take the most basic example of hiring. Now, we can talk about these values and there's lots of good things, but to integrate it into hiring means when you're interviewing a candidate, you ask them specifically, look at our core values and give me examples for each of them, how you live them in your business and personal life. Pushing that up as early in the process as possible so you're actually screening for values first and skills second. Obviously, there's some kind of general, like whatever the position is, you wouldn't look at someone who doesn't fit that position, but you're not asking skill questions until you know that there's a values fit, right? I think the same is true in the reverse. When you're firing, it should be crystal clear that there is not a cultural fit. Otherwise, all the processes inside the company means they're not correct because really that person should be walking in saying, David, I know that I'm not a fit and I know why we're having this conversation. Well, do you have any tactical examples as far as maybe what someone can do now? I mean, I don't know if that means like personality tests or trying to do some other type of tests. No, no, no. This is very specific. That means right away in the process of screening someone, no matter what position it's for, you literally ask them here, go to our website, find our core values and write down a story for each of them, how you meet them. I asked a candidate this over the weekend. 
that's a perfect example. They have to write down a story on how they've implemented one of your values on your website. You're saying if you're going to hire someone. So what was the one that they use for an example, if they're looking at your core values? I mean, you don't have to tell us their story. I expect at least one story for every core value. Okay. I don't expect one story for each core value. So that business is super fat. The core values are figure it out. Amazing experience always. Try anything. Scrappy, but smart, right? Spells out fats. Core purpose of that business is empowering change with fat. So I said, give me a story for each of these. And now each of those values have a small sentence after it that kind of gives some description. So there's some context, but I want to see how do they interpret these? I want to see what the story is, like how do they match up? And then the content of the story is critically important, right? Would you say that's probably the easiest thing that someone could do to just start things right away as far as if you're hiring is if you have your core values to try to have- Assuming you've defined the core values, right. yes. yes. That's the easiest one. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that seems like that makes sense. It's something easy to do. And I didn't know if it's a higher level way of looking at your hiring and whatnot. You went through this transition period. Was that difficult on you personally having to get rid of some of these people? Yes and no. I mean, I think most of the people that left, it was those people you're like, ah, you're just not a fit, but I can't put my finger on why. So the whole culture got better, but it was very difficult emotionally because A, we had made commitments to people in hiring them. That's a commitment that we make. So it was our fault and our mistake for not screening earlier and finding this mismatch of values. So that was on us as the people hiring. The other thing too is we made some very rapid change because we're entrepreneurs who are impatient and maybe that wasn't the best idea to make such rapid change. We came in after doing the core values process and we're like, oh my God, these people don't fit. And we got rid of the whole customer service department that day. So I think there was some ongoing stress each time we had a company quarterly meeting because we're like, oh, everyone's going to get fired. So there were mistakes we made, but would I do it differently? No, it was the right thing to do. Why don't you take us to the next period of Grasshopper or wherever you think we can to go along your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. So the next step was really when we start hitting like 15, $20 million a year in revenue. And I think the learning here was it was very much about the people that got us to where we are today are amazing people, but may not be the people to get us to the next step. So someone that ran marketing at 10 to $15 million is not the right person to run marketing at 20 to $30 million, right? And we had to start becoming okay with that, that the team would change. And as much as we want people to grow, sometimes we have to hire externally for experience because it's something that we can't train internally. And sometimes it's a different type of person. They actually think differently. They think in different levels and strategically compared to doing, right? And getting your hands dirty. And this was a very hard learning because we very much wanted to keep the great people around us. And sometimes we could do that by shifting them into another position, but sometimes the organization outgrew the person more often than and the person outgrew the organization. And that was a very difficult thing to learn because I think it makes every entrepreneur start to think like, has the organization outgrown me? That is a very valid question that has to be thought about deeply. And I think in some cases that happens and entrepreneurs need to be honest about that and figure out ways to solve it. For the marketing example, that was awesome because that's something I wouldn't even think about. Like, let's say you hire a marketing person who was helping you when you had 10 people in the company and they're actually implementing some systems where they're starting to do a newsletter and collect emails and stuff. But if you're going to go to 30 or 40 people, you're saying you need someone who's more probably strategic and has understands bigger systems and how to work with more customers. Even though they both might be marketing, they're good at different size companies and one's going to prefer working in one versus the other. Exactly. And there's just different thought processes, but there's also different experiences. 
businesses. Outside of managing people, you're managing different size budgets. You're managing like, how do I find new channels where I can spend a million dollars, not spend a thousand dollars? These are very different challenges that require different people. How do you figure that out? Did you get advice on that? It seems like it'd probably take me a little while to try to figure that out. Because again, maybe you train somebody for that and then it's not working. We learned the hard way. We tried to shove people into positions where they didn't fit. We tried to massage things and you know make it all work. And over time, we quickly realized, I'd say the crystallization probably came a year to two years later, but it was becoming very clear when we put someone in externally for those positions, we saw a rapid increase of productivity, of performance and results of that specific area. And I think the results and the metrics is what proved it to us, right? We were very much a numbers-driven organization. What point in the story should we jump to next? Yeah, I think the next interesting one is looking at what does it look like to actually scale a business beyond $20 million. And I think, again, a lot of things change actually at this point. It's an odd point where you're now getting closer to probably 40, 50 people. We were at 40. And there needs to be this process in place. There needs to be communication rhythms. There needs to be quarterly meetings and monthly meetings and all of these things like there needs to be performance reviews and one-on-ones and like career path. All of these things start to become important and you need to find the right people to do this. And I think we were in that learning process and starting to do quite well at it when we ultimately sold the business. But it's definitely a turning point in the business. And everyone says like 50 people is that point. I think it's actually a little bit more about the revenue than it is the people, but they seem to kind of go hand in hand. Are you talking about the year you actually sold it? Do you want to tell us about selling Grasshopper? Yeah. So we sold the business 12 and a half years after starting it. We had never looked to sell it. We had said no to the acquirer a bunch of times and over a year and a half process ultimately sold the business. And it was a good fit for a number of reasons. One, the acquirer was going to keep the brand, treat the people very well, keep the team and build out what we really loved. They paid a great amount of money for it. So I think it was a de-risking question as entrepreneurs. And it was a very emotional time. Everyone's like, oh my God, you got a bunch of money. What'd you do? I was like, well, I actually was pretty sad because my identity had been wrapped up in Grasshopper for so many years that I was the Grasshopper guy, like friends, family, dinners, conferences. And then all of a sudden overnight, that's gone. That's a hard thing to deal with. And people always ask me like an example, and like the easiest example is changing my email address. I had had the same email address for 12 years. And then all of a sudden I have to change it. Like A, there's a logistical thing of doing it, but B, it's very emotionally like, wow, this is a major change. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, Nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive, limited-time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. That's, I guess, coming to the sale part. But looking back, you're saying that that was pretty difficult for you. I mean, what do you think was the hardest part of building Grasshopper? 
were a lot of things that were difficult. Like as a hundred percent bootstrapped company, we always had cash concerns and problems. Like there was always more that we wanted to do than we could do with cash. And I think it was both a positive and negative, but there were times that that slowed us down. We made a lot of mistakes culturally and then fixed them. We built this false fallacy over time that I think a lot of entrepreneurs do. We've reached kind of market penetration saturation. We can't grow anymore. And this happens each time there's a small plateau in growth and we lost focus. We did other things. We tried to build other businesses rather than just focusing on the business. And each time we focused on the business, we found that it was just a plateau and we blew through it. But I think it's just this natural fear of like once a year, we kind of had this conversation like, are there enough businesses that buy our services? Could we grow anymore? Can we keep growing at this speed? Right. And I think the answer was always yes. We just kind of made ourselves think it wasn't. How about personally? I mean, what a change in your personal life at this point too? Roughly the same life. Did you have a wife and kids yet or no? No. So I was married and then I got divorced after that. I now have three kids actually. I was still in my early 20s. Kids were just not on my horizon at that point until a little bit later on. But when I sold the business at that point, I had children. But my life hadn't really changed at all, especially from a spending perspective. I could have spent far more in those later years. But again, everything back into the business and my view of it is always quite simple. Like I should be reducing my ongoing spending as much as possible and living the life I want to live. I was joking with a friend of mine the other week. He's like, why are you going on Spirit Airlines? I'm like, well, A, it's like $22 and it's only a two and a half hour trip. I mean, if it was a seven hour trip, I'm going to spend the $180 on the Delta flight instead of the Spirit flight. But I'm like, the short flight and Spirit's actually not that bad. I'm going to save far more money. Like those are the decisions I think the smartest people I know ultimately make. Oh, good. I just booked Spirit Airlines this morning. So you call me smart. <laughs> no, I really did. Yeah, I, I mean, did with Baltimore. It's like $45 one way and 45 bucks versus other competitors were like 200. And I'm like, I don't need everything. So yeah. Yeah. And I get it's uncomfortable for a seven hour flight, but a short flight doesn't really matter. No, I, I agree with you on that. It's not really sexy to talk about not spending money, but I think a lot of the successful ones that we've talked to have been able to keep their overhead low to try different things. Because if you didn't, then you wouldn't have the ability to start a new company after Grasshopper. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to tell us about switching that? And then also, were you in Boston this whole time? Yeah, so I was in Boston most of that time. The last three years of Grasshopper, I had actually moved to Las Vegas. I wanted first warm weather. I was so over. I mean, I grew up in New York and lived in Boston for 10 years. I was over wintertime. Like I'll happily fly to winter for a few days and then leave at this point. So that was one. And then two, as I started to decide I wanted to move to warm weather, I also looked at like tax perspective. Being in California didn't make a lot of sense, just as bad as Massachusetts compared to Nevada with no state income tax. So some of those decisions came into effect too. You did basically the exact opposite by going to Vegas as far as no snow, right? Yeah. You obviously want to get rid of the snow if you're going there. Yeah, to the pure heat. And so from there, you sell your company. Yeah, I mean, are you just out of work for a couple of months or a year? Or what are you brainstorming your next big idea? Because again, you've lost your kind of identity, like you said, if you already had something brainstorming to come up next. No. I had nothing. I had talked to a bunch of people before the sale and everyone said, no matter what you do, don't rush into anything. I took maybe a year and a half to like just try a bunch of different things and not to commit to anything to find what I might like to do. It was a good period of time, although very difficult as an entrepreneur. I just wanted to go do things. Like I wanted to go start something, but I kind of held myself back. And now I've started other things and become much more involved. But that period of kind of not rest, but kind of stepping back was awesome. Yeah, you get that perspective because yeah, if you just jump into something and then you get committed to it for a couple of years, 
weird. You're like, well, if I would have just waited another more month and really brainstormed that out, then I probably wouldn't have jumped into it right away. So I had about a year and a half to kind of brainstorm, try other things, and what did you come up with? During that time, I spent time working with an accelerator program, doing VC, doing my own investments, helping other people out as advisors, spent a lot of time thinking about my personal health and well-being, and found two things. One, I started writing the book, and then two, started working on a company now called Superfat, which is a nut butter-based product for uh, high-fat, low-carb diets, ketogenic and plant-based as well, and really came from my realization that our food system is very broken, and the only way to fix that is to be involved in it. So I um, became passionate about that. And like the things I'm looking to do now are twofold. One, learning. So if it's something I can learn from, I'm interested in it. And two, you know, how can I make an impact about something I care about? You sold actually Grasshopper, what, like into 2015, middle of 2015 or so? And then Superfat, did that just start in 2019? Yeah. So that's a few years later, right? I mean, that took a lot of time. Love the team that's being built there. Got heavily involved and really love what they're doing. Who do you mean them? The people at Superfat? Yeah. So the team there, Mike is running it. Actually, Mike Rant worked for me at Grasshopper in the past. And when I left, he then continued on with Grasshopper for a few years. So Mike's running that business and I'm helping out as much as I possibly can. What's your day-to-day -day like now? How much is it in the Superfat company versus what else you're doing? Yeah, I think it's a wide rate. It kind of goes up and down. I try to manage as much as stuff as possible by email. Like I actually love email. I try to do very few phone calls as much as possible unless really needed and communicate with a bunch of different teams on a pretty ongoing basis. And then across both my investments and the things I'm involved in, if a team says we really need help on X, I'll sit down and dig into and help with warehousing or whatever it is, even if I have no idea about how to do it. The Superfat company. So did you found that with your other partner? Yes, we're both involved in that. We've done a bunch of stuff together, everything from real estate development to technology businesses. I mean, we try to do all of our businesses together. This is the same guy that you founded Grasshopper with? Yeah, C-Mac. Tell us about that relationship. That seems pretty good if y'all are still friends and partners today, because usually it seems like that doesn't work out a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's been an odd partnership, but it has worked really well. And I don't know why. I wish I had a better set of things, like here are the three things to do. The three secrets. I think it's based on that we both respect each other, right? Like if he says, this is the best thing to do from a branding perspective, I just say, you know what? I don't agree with it right now, but let's try it. I believe in you and you've proven over time that, right? And I think he does the same for me. Like I say like, no, we need to do this for culture. We need to do this for marketing, whatever it is. He says, okay, well, I might not agree. I'm going to voice my opinion, but we're going to do it and see where it goes. And I think the inverse of that is very true too. Like we're both also very willing to say like, you know what? I was wrong. Let the data prove it out. And if that happens, then I think everyone's in a better case. Was your partner moving with you to when you moved to Vegas? And then you said you also moved to Austin, Texas at some point in the story. I think we just kind of quickly jumped over that. And then you're about to move back to Las Vegas. Was he jumping around with you as well? Yeah. So he moved to a few other places. He did ultimately move to Vegas as well. I think he enjoyed the warm weather too, but he is still spends a lot of time there, but also internationally now too. Is it for work international wise? No, I mean, he just enjoys it. Okay. Just for pleasure, for fun. Yeah. Well, tell us about Superfat. How big is the company today? I guess when you got started on it and like, you know, how many employees you have? Yeah, so it's still a super small team. There's only one real full-time employee outside of uh, Mike who's working on it full-time, obviously, but a bunch of contractors and vendors. And we are building that team in a remote fashion. So adding people where it makes sense, but in no physical one location. I think it allows us to open up our talent pool. And the business is doing very well great launch at the beginning of the year, looking at wholesale and retail channels. Tim Ferriss put us in his Five Bullet Friday a few weeks ago. So we got a great response from that. So we're starting to see some of these organic you know, influencers start enjoying the product. So it's been super exciting. So do you sleep 
I do try to sleep actually quite a bit. I try to go to bed around 9, 9.30 and get up pretty early in the morning. So my mornings are early. And I think that's one of the greatest quick hacks that anyone can do. And going to bed is actually quite easy when you cut out all the garbage wasted time at night. But yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty active person in general. What time's early for you? And when did you start kind of figuring out that ritual worked well for you? When I was in college, I always called myself a night person because I just stayed up late working and didn't realize how unproductive I was. Pretty soon after college, I started to realize I loved waking up early in the mornings because I could get far more done without people bothering me. I didn't understand it at the time, but if I got up at 5 a.m., I had like three to four hours of time where there was no meetings, phone calls, or people bothering me, which was very productive. I also didn't realize at the time that it actually gave me more time in a day. Getting up at five and starting is far better than working until three in the morning. And you just figured that out one night? I just kept trying. And when I wake up early and I get more done, I feel better. So I'm going to keep doing that, right? Like very simple. I feel better about myself and I get more done. So let me do that again and see if it happens again. For the future for yourself is like super fat, you think going to be a big company? Is that what you want to grow to like a grasshopper size or even bigger? Or what's yeah, your plan? I mean, I do think it's going to be a big company. I'm also working on a bunch of other things. So I don't know. I'm kind of taking it as it comes and saying like, where do I find the most enjoyment? That's where I want to spend my time. Where do you find the most enjoyment? Right now, it's a combination of the book and super fat, and hopefully that continues. But for me, it's really about empowering other people. And either I can do that with information like the book, or I can do that with physical things like super fat. If I can empower other people to be healthy and be their best selves, right? I feel good about myself. Because I mean, it seems like a different struggle for you now. At least when you're in Grasshopper, it seems like you're all in business-wise was just in Grasshopper versus now it's multiple businesses or things that you're working on. I guess trying to stay organized and decide what you're going to focus on that day or that week. I mean, how do you do that? It's a good question. I think that I try to pass it through that filter of am I learning and do I enjoy it and try to filter out the things I don't enjoy. I also tried to filter out as many of the kind of people and negative things in my life. So I got rid of news. I got rid of social media, tried to filter those things like, does it make me feel good or does it help me learn? That is kind of my general filter. Looking back on what you've grown so far, personally, what do you think has been the hardest difficult thing for you to overcome? As a child, I had a severe learning disability. So that was a very hard thing to overcome in terms of being a child. So reading, writing, all those things came very difficult to me. The benefit I got from it was learning how to learn. So I'm a visual and auditory learner. I know that I can retain information best that way. So I utilize that. I also learned the process of learning. Like what does it mean to retain information, not just memorize and rote learning. So I was very lucky in that way. So I think that's one challenge. I think the other challenge, which a lot of entrepreneurs face is this ongoing cycle of positive and negative feelings where you're on this super high and then super low, right? And how do you manage through that? I think that's been a challenge over all the years. Anyone who says that it's not, I think is lying because the emotional changes being an entrepreneur are so big. I think that's almost the hardest part, honestly, because you don't think about that and no one really talks about it till you start building the business. And like, I try to stay as like even keeled as I can because I know that's coming up and down, but still being able to deal with the emotions of that and being able to focus and not just dwell on that all day and call it a, you know, I don't want to work the rest of the day is, is an issue. If there's last thing that you want to leave anyone listening here with, what would that be? I think the most important thing today for anyone, especially entrepreneurs, is to have an optimization mindset, both in business, but also in life, right? And I think as entrepreneurs, we all go into the business with that mindset, like how do I optimize revenue and customers and retention and all of these things? But if I apply that same thing to my life, how do I optimize sleep and nutrition? 
nutrition and all of the other parts that make up a whole full and fulfilling life, I think we'll all be in a better place. Is there a best way for people to reach you to say thank you for doing the interview here? Yeah. So unstoppablebook.com, there's an email list where you can sign up and get early access to the book coming out in September. Also my email list, I send out an email once a week with a few bullet points of the things I'm most interested in, articles, things I'm testing, stuff I've bought, devices or whatever else. Also kind of what I'm watching on Netflix because I try to watch pretty educational stuff so that you can sign up there. Also davidhauser.com that has some of my older blog content, which will start to be updated this year. Right now and going forward, I mean, what's motivating you now today? After selling the company, I think that's what most entrepreneurs want to do. And it seems like you have the ability to kind of jump around and figure out what you want to do for the future. But what motivates you today? It's really empowering other people. Our core purpose at Grasshopper was empowering entrepreneurs to succeed. So like, that's what I draw energy from is being able to give that back to others. Well, thank you for taking the time to give that energy back to others listening now. So thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? After all, this episode wouldn't be available without our current members helping us cover some of the costs for you to listen for free. If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. <laughs>